right, friends. Good morning. Let's uh, flip back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll uh, continue through there. So we had a couple weeks off. We had a brother come down from Bellingham and he taught. And then we had Easter last week. We talked about the death and resurrection with the blood and the resurrection of Christ meant practically for us. And uh, we'll get back into <clears throat> Paul writing to the Corinthians. So in brief... Remember, Paul is now writing, this is actually probably, well, we know it's at least the third, but it's probably the fourth letter that Paul has actually written to Corinth. Remember, in, the first, in 1 Corinthians, he says, this is now the second time I've written to you. So we know that 1 Corinthians wasn't the first letter, it's just 1 Corinthians to us, right? So we don't have to panic. It doesn't mean the Bible's inaccurate. It's just the idea, it's the first letter to Corinth that we have. And then now we have the second letter to Corinth, and he addressed a lot of things in the first letter, some things that were going uh, wrong there, and, and the way things, uh, people were looking at things, and the way they were treating other people in the, in the gathering, and so forth. So 2 Corinthians is a, another letter that Paul writes uh, back to them, and he writes it to them because there's still some conflict that's going on. There's evidently still people there that are challenging Paul, challenging his apostolic uh, authority, um, challenging doctrine, and really, as we'll see, kind of getting back to or trying to come back to kind of an Old Testament point of view on some things. Um, and, and so Paul is writing back to them, and he's saying, and he's addressing those things. And there's a lot, right? There's a lot of chapters, so he's addressing a lot. So we're picking up, if you remember, uh, in the first chapter, he introduces himself. He talks about comfort and how God is the God of all comfort. He talks about how God wants to comfort them. And he's, he's so excited about their repentance and how they've kind of worked some things out. They're treating people better and so forth. Um, and then one of the things in chapter 12, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 12, I should say, excuse me, that uh, it's interesting because evidently someone took exception or a group of people in Corinth took, took exception to the fact that he had told them that he was going to go to Macedonia from Corinth. And he planned, uh, or excuse me, not from Corinth, from trust. And so he planned on going to Macedonia and visiting them on the way there. And then he was going to visit them on the way back. But he doesn't, he, he misses one of those visits. And so they, somebody in the gathering calls him out and says, well, you know, you said you were going to come, you didn't come. So he, has to, he writes this whole portion of this letter where he says, did we not show up because we, were, uh, our yes was, we weren't faithful to our word? Our yes wasn't yes and our no wasn't no. Uh, is that why we didn't come? And he says, no, we didn't, we didn't come because we were unable to. We were, and something else came up and I, and I had to go tend to that. And just as a side note, that's, it, we as human beings do not want to be petty. It's kind of wild if you think about it that we're reading... 2,000 years later, about a church that got upset with someone because they didn't visit when they said they would. Like, that's where we go in our hearts. That Paul, who clearly in his ministry, and that's what we'll talk about today, started that church, labored for 18 months at that church, right? He worked when he was there at different times. That he never, he never charged him any money to be at that church. And yet somebody at that church feels the... The, the, I don't know, the right, the, that it was good to say, well, you said you were going to come and then you didn't. So we don't want to be petty, right? We want to relate to people and, and give people respect and so that hopefully 2,000 years from now, should the Lord tarry, right, that nobody's saying Ocean Beach Fellowship got mad because somebody didn't show up. It should be weird. But as we continue through that, uh, he now begins in the second half of chapter 1 and on through chapter 2, he begins to uh, defend his apostleship. He calls for them to forgive. Remember, there's, there's multiple things that were going on in Corinth, and evidently there was a man, and it could be the man that had a, a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Uh, could have been another person, we don't know, but evidently there was someone that was kind of acting out in a sinful and very obviously unproductive way. And so uh, they basically say, you, you can't come to church here and do that. And so this man repents, and he comes back, and now Paul in chapter 2 is telling him, make sure you tell this guy that you love him. Make sure he knows that, that you never had something against him, like a personal issue, that, you, that it was an issue of how the, the, essentially the body could get together, that the church could uh, get along and, and be a testimony to Christ. So make sure you let that person know that you love him. And then in chapter 12, of, uh, uh, I keep saying chapter, forgive me. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he's uh, making it known to them that they, they went to Macedonia. Verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. 
So I said goodbye to, uh, to them, and I went to Macedonia. And this is, so if you, if, if you look here, he's on his way to Macedonia. Well, flip over to chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For when we came into Macedonia. So in chapter 2, he says, we, went to Mac- we left and went to Macedonia. And he doesn't pick up that thought until chapter 7, where he says, And then we made it to Macedonia. So what we have is one of Paul's famous five-chapter digressions. And it's one of the best digressions in the Scripture. Because what he's going to talk about in the, in the rest of chapter 2 and 3, 4, 5, uh, and, and 6 are all about how you and I have been empowered by the Spirit, loved by God, empowered by His Spirit, so that we can be a part of what He's doing. And this is how it works and, and, and what God's wanting to do in our lives. So it's, a, it's an incredible digression. So he's just making a side point here. This is a five, or I should say a, a four-chapter uh, side note. So we'll pick up in chapter 14, or man, whew, verse 14, and uh, for context's sake, and then we'll jump in because we really want to cover three today, chapter three. So it says there in verse 14, chapter two, verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And to the one, uh, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal for such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. So Paul is now going to transition, and he's going to begin to defend his ministry, basically. But he says there that they, in the, in chapter, the end of chapter 2, he's making the point. He says, we were not people. When, when we came to you there in Corinth, we were not people that were peddling the word of God, selling it like out of the back of a cart or something like that. And we'll, we'll, actually, he, he brings up the, letter, uh, the idea of letters of commendation too. So what happened in the early church, just like there is today, you had people that saw an opportunity to make money from religious uh, ideologies and so forth. And so what people did was, so remember, there's no New Testament, right? There's no New Testament. There's very few copies of the, of the Old Covenant. Then all the New Testament, or I should say, all the preaching that's going on right now is preaching that's occurring from the Old Testament, right? Because at the time that this is written, there aren't any Gospels written yet. So nobody's written a Gospel yet. Nobody's published a Gospel yet. And, and it's going to be 1,400 years before a printing press comes along. So everything is handwritten, right? So what would happen is people would come and they would say, Oh, yeah, 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 Johnny sent me. John sent me. And I'm here to talk to you about the new covenant in Christ and how that works. And they would just say stuff, basically. And maybe they knew a little bit about it, and maybe they didn't. But then they would need money for the, the, the time they stayed there. They would ask the churches for money, and they would get money, basically, as false teachers, right? So Paul's saying, when we came to Corinth, that when he was there, 18 months he was there, and we already mentioned it, he, we know from 1 Corinthians, he never took you know, one denarii from them. He took no money from them. He made a point of it. He said, I wanted to make sure that the gospel came to you at no charge. Now, we know he was supported by other churches, and he worked part-time as a tent maker, but that he himself didn't do these things. He wasn't peddling the word, right? So, and they would know that. Anybody in Corinth that wasn't you know, a new addition since the, the letter had been written or since he was there, they would know that yeah, that's what Paul did. That's what he was about. So he's saying, not only did we not peddle it, not only was it not for so that we could make money, and the other, the, the we would probably be Titus, Timothy, and Apollos, and there were others that visited Corinth that we know of. But he says, not only is, is that the case, but we actually preached it with sincerity. So what we told you, we really meant, we really believed, and we really thought. Now, the interesting, anybody can say that, right? Anybody can say, I'm sincere. If you don't believe me, just ask me, right? It's just, it's one of those things where, That can just be words. He could say, I wasn't peddling the word of God. And and that could just be words. Except with him, he proved it, number one, when he was there. 
But then number two, he's going to go on and he makes this point. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to, to you or, for, or from you? So he now brings it, uh, or I shouldn't say brings it back, but he now is going to complete his thought by saying, look, we not only, not only did we not peddle it, but are you saying that we need to be commended to you by a letter? So to combat people that were uh, basically taking money for being false teachers, people would go, they would get letters of recommendation from the apostles, later on from the disciples of the apostles, and so forth. So in other words, like for example, in Romans uh, chapter 16, in the end of Romans, it says, Paul makes a point, he says, I'm sending Phoebe to you, right? So there's a woman, her name is Phoebe. He says that she's a diaconess, and you can figure out whether that means she's a deacon or she's a servant, because it means the same thing. But he says, I'm sending her to you, and he says this. He says, make sure that you give her the respect she deserves because she's a fellow servant of mine and make sure she gets everything she needs for the work while she's there, right? So that was an example. That's an example that we have of how people would carry letters and you'd go to a church and you'd be like, oh, okay, this is from Paul. We can see the signature. All right, cool. Phoebe, come in. What do you need? How can we you know, help you help us or whatever, however that exchange would work. So people would go around. They would have letters of recommendation, and they'd be like, oh, see, look, John signed this, or whatever it might be. And say, no, I'm from these guys, and I'm here to share these revelation, because they're not teaching from the New Testament, right? I'm here to share this revelation that's been given by the apostles, and, and perhaps they might have had a handwritten copy of one of the, the earlier le- uh, letters, like Galatians or something like that. But he says that, that, that they had these letters to be able to do that. So, so people would know, okay, you're legit. You're actually from the apostles, or you're from Jerusalem, or you're from one of these people, right? So that's how, so Paul's making the point. He says, do I need a letter of recommendation to go to, to minister to a church that knows me, this, that I started, that I, that I was part of, that I, that I labored among you? So you see the challenge there. So there's, evidently there's people in Corinth who are challenging Paul. And now we know from history and from kind of the rest of what, what he's going to cover here now and also what he covers in all these other letters that the primary, you, you had a few kind of major uh, uh, doctrines that were being, false doctrines that were being passed around. Uh, one was kind of Gnosticism. It was the idea of secret knowledge. And you see that today, right? We love secret knowledge because we love the Goonies, right? We don't want to admit it, but we love National Treasure, the movie. We love the Goonies. We love all those things. Everybody loves secret treasure, and so Gnosticism just plays right, and Gnosticism, it comes in different forms. It can be like, if you know Hebrew, you'll know Jesus so much better. If you say Yeshua instead of Jesus, you're on the inside, right? But it manifested in so many different ways. It's this idea of secret knowledge, and then also uh, uh, self, you know, basically abasing oneself physically, all sorts of things like that. Um, then, the, then you had heresies about the resurrection of Jesus, but, but mostly, mostly, it was based on what he's going to talk about today. It's, it's, it's the kind of the Jesus plus heresy that also is very much alive today, right? We just have different ones. So many teachers, many people, false teachers, where they were saying they'd go to Corinth, they'd go to these different places, and they say, yeah, 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 Jesus the Messiah, right on. I'm into that. But you need to keep the dietary laws too. Because if it was unclean in the Old Covenant, well, it's got to be clean now. Even though we have record from John in the New Testament where he says, and he made all things clean. And we have evidence in Acts where God says, kill and eat, Peter. Right? So you have all this evidence that in the New Testament that the Old Testament dietary laws are not for us, much less looking at Romans and all these other ones. right? So going from there, it would be like, well, it's Jesus. Yeah, 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 Jesus. But you need to be circumcised too for men, obviously. Oh, it's Jesus, yeah, he's, he's good, but you also need to keep the Sabbath. So those are kind of the big three, circumcision, dietary laws, and the Sabbath. And those, obviously, some of those traditions have carried into, into Christian lives even today, where, where we have whole denominations that are based around this kind of partial following of the law in some sort of uh, uh, attempted achievement at, at either fellowship or righteousness with God. And we're actually about to read a pretty rough set of scripture right here where Paul is really going to put that down, that whole idea. So Paul, writing to them, says, do I really need these letters? Is this really what has to happen? He says, no, I don't. He says, because you're our letter. In other words, like Jesus told us, right? By their fruit, you shall know them. 
Now, we, that doesn't mean that you see your, you know, said television preacher on TV and you know that guy. We're not talking about can a person have sin in their life and preach the word. We Christians for uh, the last 2,000 years have preached or have, have shown the fact that you absolutely can do that. That, that you have how many pastors that have these incredible, let's just be honest, incredible ministries. How many human beings that have these incredible ministries and then they fall and we're all like, oh, because we have this weird idea that God won't bless his word if someone's not perfect, which is just not a true idea, right? We could probably just name in our last, last decade just the famous ones that have fallen through uh, uh, adultery or money or these different things. So Paul now, here, he, he, he says, we don't need a letter because you're our letter. You're the fruit. He says this, you yourselves are a letter, verse 2, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. He says, we don't need a letter. He says, we don't need a letter because you are the expression. Look at the church that's there. Look at the, the, what God has done in your own personal life. Look what he's doing in, in your community. Look at, you know, and if, if you were to go back to 1 Corinthians, and he, he kind of gives that list in the first chapter where he says, you guys have every spiritual uh, gift at work in your church. God is with you in your church. And this is one of the most defunct, dysfunctional churches you ever read about, right? And if we go back and read what's going on in 1 Corinthians, it's radically dysfunctional. You have the elders that are, that are endorsing a man who has an open sexual relationship with his stepmother. And they're like, yeah, we're cool with that. You have people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper because they're having their, their time of their potlucks and then they're so liquored by the time that it's time for the Lord's Supper, they're drunk and they're, they're partaking. You have rich people bringing food to potlucks and they just eat it all in front of the poor people. And so the poor people, they don't get any food and it brings reproach to the name of Christ. So Paul's talking to that church and he's saying, God's doing a great work. <laughs> God's going to bless you. He's going to confirm you to the end. All the gifts are going on. Like, but you need to repent. You need to, you know, in these areas, you need to start saying no to yourself. So it's, it's a pretty incredible thing. So he says, you're the letter. You're the, the explanation. You're the proof. You're, the, you're what everybody can look at. He says, he says, you're there for everyone to read. Not to mention the fact that look at the society they're coming out of. Literally, Corinth, streets lined with phallic symbols. Everywhere, nudity and sex and debauchery. That's what they were known for historically. It's what they, and every, every person every de, ever depicted as a Corinthian is drunk and half-dressed in, in, in Greek uh, uh, theater, or Roman theater, I should say. So it's, it's, he says, look what's happening. It's important that when we interact with each other, that we, I think, give each other space. Because the bottom line is, we can know each other by our fruit, right? We, we, as we get to know one another, and we experience forgiveness from one another and kindness to one another, that when something we don't understand happens, we don't have to fly off the handle. Or something happens that we don't like, we don't have to go, oh, I knew it! I know you've been faithful for 20 years, but the other day you didn't lock my door, you know, whatever. They're the things that we get into. Or the other day, you said you weren't sure how the Eucharist works, so I think you're into transubstantiation. We can't be friends anymore. Like, there's latitude, right? Because hopefully we know each other. Hopefully we're getting to know each other. So when someone does something that's, that seems out of character or wrong, we don't have a freak out. That's what this world does. That's what this society does, right? This society profits, and, 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 and not only just profits, but just, it's bizarre, rejoices in public shame. This person said this, and I'm going to blast it everywhere I can so they can get just canceled. And maybe they did say something wrong. I'm not saying that people don't. But maybe the, the offender also needs help and care. And, 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 and maybe they're not actually the offender. If someone's doing something crazy in our minds, but we know this person, like, wow, this, this person's usually pretty solid. Maybe we should go and ask him, like, did you do this thing first, right? Like, that seems like a pretty valid question. If you did do it, how did you come to it? How, what happened? Why did you do it? And, and are, are you proud of it? Or, you know, do you want to move past it? Right, so we, we can, because what's happening, these people are just coming into Corinth. There's a select group of people, and they're saying, Paul's a loser. They literally say, he writes really powerful letters, but he's really weak in person. So they assault his character, they assault his doctrine. They assault his, his person, what he looks like. 
We don't want to be that way. And it's causing the whole church to have trouble. Now, we need to call sin, sin, 100%. And if something has to go public, then it can go public. But we don't have to go nuclear right off the bat with our brethren, right? We can, love covers a multitude of sin. We can care. We can work through, right? The public nuclear option ought to be down the road, not the first thing that we do. So he says, hey, you're our letter. Then he goes on from there. He expands on that. And he says, you're written from our hearts. The idea there, he loved them. He meant it. They're written from the heart. He goes on, he says, verse 3, you should know that you are a letter from Christ. So now he's, he's going to switch it up a little bit because he's, he's, he's got two major points he's going to make here. One is that his ministry is valid through Christ. The second one is, excuse me, it's a, it's, he's going to go through and make a whole comparison between the old and the new covenant. So the comparison seems to indicate that he's talking about his ministry through the new covenant. But the people that have beef with him or that are upset with him or critical of him, those people are trying to minister to people from the old covenant. All right, And so it's, he's going to start to mingle that into his discussion now. So he says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So he says, our ministry is from Christ, and it's not about written things. It's about God's spirit working among us, right, through the gospel. From there, he's going to say, not on tablets of stone, but on tables of human hearts. Now, they didn't write on tablets and stone, right? In the Roman era, like nobody's out there chipping stone away for like a shopping receipt. You, you can actually go online and you can see, it's kind of cool, you can see receipts, Roman receipts. You can see uh, Roman pay stubs uh, from the Roman army and how they got paid and so forth, uh, which, you know, as a side note, is kind of wild because like if you were, you had to pay for all your own equipment as a Roman soldier. If you had a horse, you had to pay for your horses take, you know, to be taken care of. Anyway, side note, fascinating history. No stone. All right, so it wasn't like the Romans were like, that'll be one apple. So when he starts talking about tablets of stone, this is not arbitrary. He's not just like, this sounds good, poetic justice. He's talking about the old covenant, because where was the original covenant written? On tablets of stone, right? The Ten Commandments, when, Mount, when Moses comes down from the mountain. So he says, our ministry is not based on those tablets, Okay, It's not based on them. He says, our ministry is based on a new thing through the Holy Spirit, through Christ. So he makes a differentiation. What does the law do? Right, Because he goes through this incredibly in Galatians and in Romans. What does the law do? The law literally has one job, and it's to convict of sin. It even says that it multiplies sin. And it's weird how it does that in our life, but it reveals sin and it shows rebellion. That's what it does. Paul tells us very clearly in multiple letters, he says, the law can make no one righteous. In fact, in chapter 3 of Romans, he says, now righteousness has appeared apart from the law. So he's saying that these false teachers, that they're ministering out of the Ten Commandments the tablets of stone. And he says, our ministry wasn't like that. It was through the Holy Spirit. See, their ministry, Paul's ministry, is about Christ and what he did. The old covenant is about human beings and what they had to obey, you know, a theocratic government and so forth. So he's going to expand on that even more. He says... <clears throat> In verse, uh, we'll turn the page here. In verse 4, he says, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he says, We are very confident. We have a lot of hope and trust in what God did through us. And he even makes the point, he says, this is nothing of ourselves, right? That's important. He, he says, this was our ministry prior to this, but then he says, this was nothing of ourselves. So 
Paul's making it real clear. Like, this was not something that we did or we come up with or we're really good at or, you know, I'm just the, the, he was just the right guy or whatever. He says, no. He says that we're not competent in ourselves, but our competency comes from God. God empowers us to do it. And he says, here's how he empowers us. It's with the new covenant. It's not by the letter of the law. And he says, the letter kills. And that's like a standalone statement. The letter kills. Well, what are the letters? Contextually, what do they have to be? The letters that were etched on stone. The Ten Commandments. The 613 Levitical Commandments. Even those weren't etched on stone. It's lumped into that same idea. The law. Right? So he says, our ministry happened through the power of the Spirit, and it gives life. And we talked about that a little bit last week. See, the, the, the difference is that when they gave the blood of bulls and goats, I know we've talked about this, but it's, it's an important concept, I think. When they sacrificed the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats, or, or pigeons, whatever sacrifice that, you, know, you want to talk about, the scripture clearly says in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. So tuck that away. It never forgave sin. So in the entirety of all those uh, sacrifices that were done, all during the, the, the Jewish religion, when they sacrificed, the word that's used there is atoned. English, atoned for sin. In Hebrew, it literally means the blood of bulls and goats smeared over sin. So it was, it was a covering. The forgiveness that occurred because there has to be forgiveness of sin for salvation to occur, right? To be in the, the presence of God. The forgiveness came still by faith looking forward to Messiah who is promised to forgive sin. Does that make sense? So all the old covenant saints that, that, that sacrificed in the Jewish faith, the forgiveness did not come from the blood of bulls and goats. That, in a sense, atoned over sin, and they all, for their salvation, look forward to Messiah coming. Whereas we, today, we look back to what Messiah did, right? So Paul is making the point here. He says, our, our ministry and what God is doing here gives life because Christ's blood, when he went to Calvary, bore our sin, actually took it away. Remember, even John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And that's before the New Testament. That's all based on Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would take away the sin of the world. Then from there, we know from our New Testament uh, texts and so forth, that what happened was Christ actually took the sin of the whole world. Remember, we looked at 1 John last Sunday, uh, 1 John chapter 2, where it says he, not, he died not only or paid not only for our sins, the church, but it says the sins of the whole cosmos, the world, the created universe. John makes the point that Christ's blood was not just for everyone who would get saved, but his blood paid for the sins of the cosmos. So with that, that means that every single person who responds to Christ, who, who decides, I want to know Jesus, is now forgiven, and that every single person on the planet has an opportunity to receive Christ. So this idea that Paul's perpetuating, he says, it's not that our ministry and the life that came to your church, since you're our letter, you're our proof of our, of our ministry, he says, because of that, you, you, it's, it's no, it had nothing to do with the law. So these people that are troubling you with the law, they're wrong. Where in fact that the Spirit is giving life to anyone who asks for it through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul's writing about. That's what he's saying. And he says, we have incredible hope and we have incredible confidence in this truth. Verse 6, it says, uh, or we cover verse 6, I'm sorry. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, he says, for if the ministry that brought death was engraved in letters on stone. So let's just stop there, because you go, James, you're kind of being a jerk here. I'm really not trying to be a jerk. It's just a really important concept. What is the ministry that brought death? Whatever was written in stone. What was written in stone? The Ten Commandments. So Paul is saying that the ministry of the Old Covenant is a ministry of death. All right? It's important to consider this. 
And we'll talk about why here in a minute. He says it's the ministry of death. And he says it came with glory. So we're not saying that the ministry, that the old covenant is bad, right? Jesus said the law is perfect. He said the law is perfect. It perfectly exposes sin. And it perfectly does not make anyone righteous. And it perfectly governed a theocratic nation if they had wanted it, right? So the law is perfect. We have no beef with the law. We have no beef with the old covenant. We're not trying to belittle the old covenant. We're not saying that the old covenant didn't have a place. But it was the ministry of death, and it was temporary, and we'll talk about that. He says it came with glory. So the word glory pretty much every time in the New Testament is always doxa. And maybe you've been to like a Christmas program at a church somewhere, and then at the end it says doxology. And then someone stands up and says some stuff, and like God is really good, and then they pray, right? So doxa in Greek is the idea of good opinion. That's what it means. So we translate that in English as glory. So you might look at someone, a war hero or someone who's done something incredible, and that that person has glory. There's a glory to them. In other words, there's a a weightiness, an importantness. There's a good opinion. They're worthy of good opinion. Does that make sense? So he says here that this Old Testament ministry, the ministry of death, the law, that it had a glory to it, that it's worthy of good opinion. Then he goes on from there and he says, So that the Israelites could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. So he makes the point, and remember we could go back and read about it, when Moses goes into the tabernacle and he stands before the Lord, every time he comes out his face is glowing, right? And so Paul says that he wore a veil over his face uh, to, to hide the glory. And he'll talk more about why he did that in a minute. But he calls the glory, and he calls the covenant, transitory. Literally, the root word here is useless or passing away. In fact, some of your translations might say that was coming to an end or that was ending, right, in English. So the word that Paul uses, he's actually going to use this word four times now, in relation, three times in relationship to the old covenant, and one time in relationship to the veil, okay? So he says that the old covenant was transitory, literally passing away, coming to an end. That's important for us because when did it come to an end? In Christ. Not the promises for Israel, all right? The promises for Israel, they are going strong. Jesus will come back and he will fulfill every promise that was given to Israel. They will be in the land, in, 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 depending on your eschatology, and I don't even want to argue about it because, to be honest, I don't even care, but in the millennial reign, they will be there. Or maybe not. Maybe it's before that. I don't, it doesn't, I'm not trying to be jerks. It's like, well, whatever, man. Like, people are dying out here. I don't really care when Israel's going to finally get theirs. I just want them to do that. But the point is, those promises will be fulfilled, right? So we're, we're golden. For us, though, it ended. So why would we want to go back to it? Why would we say, you're actually super spiritual if you say Yeshua instead of Jesus? You're actually super spiritual if you have an Afi Coleman or a Seder dinner. Hey, if you want to have an Afi Coleman or a Seder dinner, honestly, God bless you. Seriously, and I mean that sincerely. God bless you. Have the bitter herbs, do your thing, eat with the staff, like, cool. But it's for historical encouragement alone. That is not, God doesn't go, oh, you're becoming more Jewish. I love you more. You're so much better than all those Gentiles out there that are just staying Gentiles. I'm so glad you're adopting this. It's great to remember, right? God was faithful to the Jews. That's what Passover is. And we rejoice in that, right? Because if he he gave promises to the Jews and he fulfilled those and then he's going to fulfill the rest, that means that he's trustworthy to us. And we can, you know, history is cool and symbology it can be risky, but it's cool. You know, it's, it's, it is what it is. But we're not trying to be more Jewish. We're not trying to resurrect this old covenant because its glory was passing away. Verse 8, he says, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So if this thing that ministered death to everyone and it was for a limited time, how much more glorious, how much more doxa, how much good opinion or glory or you know, good estimation or awe or however you would like to, you know, illumination, you know, in our, our weightiness in our hearts, how much more of that is the new covenant worth? And it gets even, even farther along. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation, 
the ministry that brought condemnation. That's what Paul labels the old covenant as. I mean, it's, it's noteworthy, right? We're not, it was perfect. It was perfect condemnation. It was perfect at what it did. It's not for us. If the ministry of condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? See, he's making this comparison because people are trying to sneak in with laws. We have different laws now. We don't say, hey, everybody, well, most likely, you need to be circumcised. Or, hey, everybody, you need to make sure that you, you know, at sundown on Friday that you don't use electricity and you, or whatever. We, we're probably not wrestling with that too much. But our modern stuff is more like this. Do you read the King James Bible? I mean, how many of us have been handed a pamphlet that was like, if you're not reading the King James Bible, I don't know if you're saved. And you're like, well, that's weird because I've never seen a unicorn and yet it's in the King James Bible. So we have to be careful. There's a reason why it's had additions and changes because people say, they say things like, well, when the perfect has come, they use that verse out of Corinthians, when the perfect has come, to mean the King James Bible. And you're like, could you snatch anything more out of context? Because Paul didn't even know anything about the King James Bible. They didn't even have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. But we just get this burn in our saddle and we go, ooh, I don't know. Have you ever spoken tongues, which is clearly the only, uh, the only evidence that you've been filled with the Spirit? There's whole very popular denominations that teach that. Right down from our church, in fact. That if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not saved. That's really weird because I was under the impression that a person is saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I was under the impression from Ephesians chapter 2 that by simply trusting in what the Lord Jesus did at Calvary, by a simple acknowledgement that I have immorality in my own heart, that I'm not a good and a right person, and that I need forgiveness, and Lord Jesus, I just accept what you did for me. I was under the impression that that's how a person got saved. Or we say baptism. If you're not baptized, it doesn't really work for the thief on the cross. Because people take things out of context and they twist words. So the ministry is of righteousness. He says, how much more glory? Why would we reduce ourselves to washings and translations and whatever? Why would we reduce ourselves? Why would we attack what Jesus did at Calvary and say, well, yeah, his blood is so powerful unless I don't get dunked in water and then it's worthless. And then people say, well, it's, it's the obedience. It's the obedience. Oh, that's interesting. So you're telling me obedience saves me. Would anybody here like to raise their hand and say they've been obedient enough to make it to heaven? I don't think so. Would any of us raise our hand and say, I am righteous enough? No, we wouldn't. It's, so, it's, it's why he says, look, at the end of the day, it's nothing but grace that saves us. His favor for us. All our faith does is say, ah, I heard that. I buy into that. I need that. And, and the whole point of Romans 4 is that that's not a work. The example of Abraham just believing God, it was not a work. Abraham just decided to believe God, and God said, okay, you're right with me. So Paul's like, just can we get, be done with all the, the, the other stuff? And instead, can we just rejoice in this ministry of life? Everything that spawned out of the old covenant is death and condemnation. But we have new life and righteousness in Christ. He's going to go on from there and he's going to say this. He says, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Think about that. We already know it was glorious because the law was perfect, right? But Paul says, you can't even put the two covenants in the same room. He says, this has, the old covenant has no glory. If you try to compare, like, which one's better? Like, this one can't even walk into the competition. It has no glory when compared to the new covenant in Christ. You go, wow, you're really being hard on this. I am. Because when you get into things, when, you, when a person begins to go down the rabbit hole of Judaism, 
not for history's sake, not for just learning about God, but actually as a thing of either pleasing God or of righteousness, it destroys their faith because they move to a place of works. And you know what the crazy thing about works is? One of kind of two things happens. Either you're really good at it and you notice that everybody is not, and then you're a jerk. Because you look around and you say, I keep the Sabbath. Isn't that the Pharisee? And the poor man, the, the, the Pharisee prays thus with himself, thank you that I'm not as other men are. I think if you find yourself praying that, or I do, we should probably stop. It's Luke 18. Think about that. It's, and I, I, I don't think it's just, I think it's kind of poetic. He prayed thus with himself. I'm not like every other man. And I'm certainly not like this tax gatherer next to me. I tithe. I fast twice a week. I do all these things. His prayer is literally, God, you're welcome from me. And it says in the poor man, the tax collector, it says he would, I mean poor in spirit, he wouldn't, it says he wouldn't even look to heaven. So he's in there. He's got no claim. It says that he smote upon his breast. That he's, he's there, he's, he's smashing himself. He's just like, he's tore up. And he says, and all his only plea is this. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't say, and I'll stop tax collecting. And I'll do everything right. And I'll walk old people across the street. And I'll make sure that I tithe at the temple. And I'll, No, he just says, God, can you please have mercy on me? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something. That man went home justified. He went home right with God. But not the Pharisee who was doing everything right. We're not advocating for bad behavior. We're not advocating for terrible thought processes that are sinful. We're advocating for the fact that a person is righteous and the, the covenant that we have is so glorious that we don't ever want to even try to dabble with the old to try to like enhance the experience or make myself better. You are who you are and who you need to be in Christ. And everything that God wants you to do from that point forward is going to come from a place of his word in the New Testament it's going to come from a place of his spirit speaking to our hearts and as we minister with and to each other in fellowship. That's where it'll happen. I don't have to go to YouTube and go watch 20 hours and learn Hebrew to be more like God. I have to humble myself and invite him into my life. And that's it. And so we have this incredible covenant. He goes on from there. And he says, and if what was transitory came with, uh, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? This is the same word. It's katagero. It's the same word where it says transitory though as it was there in verse 7, passing away or coming to an end. And now he, he reiterates that in, in verse 11. I said chapter again. I'm sorry. In verse 11. For, and, if it, uh, and if it was transitory, came with glory. Again, if that which was passing away, if that which was ending had glory, how much more glory that which lasts. Now you even have the time comparison. The old covenant as it pertains to the church is over. It's over. We, all of our righteousness with Christ is through the gospel. The new covenant is the covenant that lasts. The portions of the old covenant that are yet to be fulfilled are the promises to Israel that they will get their inheritance and that, they will, and that God will reveal himself to them. It'll be a glorious, glorious revival in the life of Israel. And when that happens, I don't know, you tell me, but it will happen. He's going to go from there and he says, verse 12, he says, Therefore, we have such hope and are very bold. This is it. <laughs> I love this phrase. Therefore, what's the Therefore. Therefore, because of this new covenant, the old covenant has no hope. It had hope to the Israelis, but it had hope to the Israelis because they looked to the coming of Messiah. If you, I, I really encourage you, read an Israeli history that's not on like a weird Christian website with a bunch of flames on it, all right? Read Israeli history that's not like fanboy stuff, and what you'll find is about 95% of the time, that's my own made-up number, so you can reject it. About 95% of the time, they did not walk with God. The testimony of Elijah, when God talks to Elijah, he says, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Out of three or four million, two to, two to four million. I don't know what the percentage is on that, but it feels pretty bad. 7,000 out of the entire nation of Israel did not 
they were the only ones who weren't idolatrous. Yeah. And yet God provided for them and loved them and cared for them. We just get this weird idea. If I'm a good boy, I get treats. And if I'm a bad boy, I just get hosed. God didn't even deal with Israel like that. When you go back to Deuteronomy and you read the, 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 the promises and the curses, the blessings and the curses, Israel doesn't get the curses until like way later, centuries later. But we treat it as if it's like moment by moment. And God just can't wait to get us and the bad people out there. And he's just, it's just this, this, this covenant. With, there's, there's, no, there's no peace or hope in that. It's always been, even in the old covenant, it's always been based on the mercy of God. And he told him that over and over again. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the, I'm the God that established you. I'm the God that loves you. And he, he even says in Isaiah, all day long, I have reached out to a rebellious people. His kindness, when, when, when the other shoe fell, or you know, however you want to put it, when, when, the, when the curses came, it was way down the road when they had come to a place where they fully rejected him. And that's when he said, I've made your heart dull. And, the, and if you read Isaiah 29, it's not that he dulled the heart of the masses. It's that he stopped talking to the prophets. That's an important idea there. But again, it's transitory. <clears throat> he says, we have hope. So we have hope. We have hope. Why? Because it's all based on Christ. Our standing before the Lord, our righteousness, all the blessings, it's all based on what Jesus did. Now, if we act like fools and we continue in sin, will bad things occur in our life? Probably eventually, right? Because if I'm constantly looking to sex or drug or Netflix to satisfy me, I will eventually come to a place that I have a very empty life, won't I? And I will have done nothing for the sake of the kingdom, and I'll have no, no the, uh, it's not that I lose my salvation, but I haven't lived for Christ. I'm not living for the one thing that fulfills me. So it's not a threat of destruction. It's a lack of fellowship. It's not that God is removing his spirit from me. It's that I'm not receiving from him. Every time I pick rebellion, I say no to God and what he has, right? So instead, we want to say, we want to be honest. Well, here I am, Lord. I'm not that great, but I really need you. Forgive me for my past. Forgive me fellowship-wise for my past. Of how I've always insisted on me. I've been rude to people. I've, I thought I was really great. You know, whatever it might be. So he says there in verse 13, he says, We are not like Moses. We are not like Moses. Right? Huge divisions here. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Again, Katagero. He says, you know why Moses put that thing on? Because he didn't want the Israelites to see that the, the glory was passing away. It would be there for a little bit, and then it would be gone. It wasn't intrinsic glory that came out of Moses. It was just an outshining of him being with God. And he didn't want to see that it went away. So he wore a veil. And he says, but we're not like that. We're not like Moses in that respect. We don't have to try to hide from the fall, the uh, the." Uh, uh, temporality of the covenant. He says, but their minds were made dull, and to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ it is taken away. Even to this day, Moses, uh, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So he makes this point, and he's going to transition with the whole veil idea. The veil prevented them from seeing that the, the, the glory on Moses' face was going away, but now he says that, the, that Israel has a veil, and that every time the old covenant is read, that the veil is still over their face. They can't see Jesus for the Messiah. Now, if we were to turn to Romans chapter 11, or, return, or uh, 10, 11, uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess 10 and 11, 9, 10, and 11, we would see that the dulling effect, and if you turn to Isaiah 29, this is super important, super important. If, when you research this, it's not that God just said, you know what, to hell with you guys, none of you can understand me anymore. That's not the idea at all. Because he says that he continually outreached to them all day long. And then eventually it says he dulled their hearts and closed their eyes to the prophets. In other words, he stopped speaking to them. He didn't stop being available to them. Does that make sense? 
This is a really important because if you take this idea that God all of a sudden was just like, you know what? I've had it up to here. Now you, I, just, I forbid you from believing. That's not justice and that's not love. He didn't do that. It's very clear he didn't do that. And so when we rehear what's happening, their minds are dull because they refused Jesus. Right? I mean, that's what the quotes are in the New Testament when he's talking about it. They're, they became dull because they refused <clears throat> Excuse me. They refused light. For example, twice in Jesus' ministry, he says, wait for it. <clears throat> he says, to everyone who has, more shall be given. But to everyone who has not, even what they have shall be taken away. Right? He says it once at the beginning and once at the end. In the beginning, <clears throat> he's talking to the disciples because they say, Hey, remember when you were talking about that whole seed thing and the ground and what happens? What does that mean? So that kind of blows away the idea that Jesus spoke in agricultural ideas because everybody understood him. They clearly did not. They say, what does that mean? And he says, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Because to everyone who has, more shall be given. And everyone who has not, what they have shall be taken away. It's not this mysterious thing like Jesus is like, watch this. I'm just going to take stuff from people. The idea is this, you came, you had the parable, and you came and asked what it meant, so you get more. To the other people, like Pharisees and so forth, they just ignored it and walked away, even what they had was taken away. It's actually the perfect illustration of what he says. He says, the hard-packed ground is the hard heart, that as soon as the seed is spread on it, that the, the birds of the air come and, and snatch it away. And it's, this, it's the same idea that when the gospel goes out or when Christ is speaking, the people that just rejected his speech, even what they had was taken away. They had the parable. They didn't adhere to it. They didn't listen to it. They didn't consider it. They didn't care about it. And so Satan ends up uh, and essentially distracting them all the more, and they learn less. Even what they have is taken away. So it doesn't have to be kind of this big, mysterious idea. He's just saying, this is what happens in a life when they ignore me. So in Israel and in our hearts, but specifically here in Israel, when people listen, but they don't acknowledge or they won't turn, then they have a veil and they don't hear. Then he goes on from there and he says, uh, even to this day, we read that, I'm sorry, verse 10, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So it's interesting because it's Israel, 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 there, there, there. And then verse 15, all of a sudden it's when anyone. Your Bible might say one, the one. It just, it just means an individual. Whenever an individual, any individual, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, here's something important, too. This, the, the, the verb tense for taken away is, it's a present tense. It's a present passive tense. It's not a past tense. Why is that important? Because it's when the person turns to the Lord, then, as a result of that, the veil is taken away and they understand in other words, Paul's not saying the veil has to be taken by God and then you turn to him. It's that you turn to him and then the veil is taken away. Does that make sense? That takes humility in each one of us to be able to say, I don't really understand what's happening or what's going on, but Lord, will you show me? Explain to me this, the parable. I don't get it. Explain to me why this is happening in my life, please. Explain to me what you want. Explain to me what, you know, that when, the, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And it, it also disregards an idea that many of our brethren have. They're awesome brethren. We love them. The idea that God regenerates us first, and then that causes us to turn to the Lord. Because that's not what happens here. We turn to the Lord, and then that gains us understanding, and we trust it and get saved. So he says, when a person turns to the Lord, then that person, the veil is removed, uh, and it's taken away. He says, uh, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Why would he say that? Because he just got done talking all about what? The Old Covenant written on stone. So he says, you have the, the Old Covenant is stone, but the New Covenant is the Lord who's the Spirit. Now, everywhere in the New Testament, virtually, Spirit is pneuma, right? Breath, air. So the idea is the Lord is that breath. He is that that moving force, if you will. I'm not trying to get all like Star Wars or something, but he is, he's, he's that movement. It's his spirit. It's from him, and he's moving, and he's doing something incredible, right? 
So it's not from stones. It's not from that. And where God is moving, there's freedom. Freedom from what? The law. Freedom being a slave to to feasts and, and all these different things. There's freedom from that. We minister to God not from stones, not from the the, the Ten Commandments, not from the 613. We minister to God based on His Spirit and His Word that His Spirit has communicated to us, right? So we don't have to pray about, God, should I murder this person, right? Because we know that we're called to love a person, right? So we don't have to. There's things that we don't pray about. We don't say, oh, God, do you want this? Should I tell my wife off today? Right? I don't have to pray about that because I know that I'm to love her and care for her. Right? Should I be sarcastic at someone who frustrates me today? I don't have to pray about that because I already know the answer to that. I'm to, to love them. Right? So we have freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from the law, and freedom to follow God wherever he might call us. Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, we have freedom. And then he goes on and he finishes and he says, and we all, who's the we? Believers, Right? And we all, with unveiled face, contemplate the Lord's glory. So we don't, you don't have to, but he says as Christians, that's what we do. We, hopefully that's what church is, right? That's what our morning times are. That's what our worship times are. We contemplate. We think through critically. We think through with given time and energy, God's doxa, what he, who he is, his good, the good opinion of who he is. We think about these things. And he says, when we do this, he says, but we all with an unveiled face, so we don't have a veiled face, we've turned to the Lord, we're contemplating his glory, the doxa of the new covenant and, and what he's done, and we are being transformed. This is a continuation, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a present tense. We are right now in the state and always being in the state of being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The more that we consider Jesus, the more that we give critical thought, the more that we uh, research, the more that we worship, the more that we consider him, we're looking at him and we're being changed into that same image, not divinity, but into the image of what true life is, what a true, uh, if you will, human being is, someone who's caring and loving, someone who looks out for others someone who's invested in other people's lives, someone who considerate, someone who is generous, right? All these things, these attributes that we saw in Jesus. Because the more that we focus on him, you can take any of the attributes we talk about, the more that you realize that the other things that we want to concentrate on, they fade away, right? Whether it's money or some sort of satisfaction or whatever it might be, the more we see the eternal and the more we're changed by his Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, right? The supernatural event, we're not changed by the law. The law changes no one, right? It can control behavior for, because of fear, but it changes no one. But we're actually being transformed. So it's, it's an incredible new covenant that's worthy of incredible glory, and it's a lasting covenant that will never stop. And so one day, we'll be with the Lord perfected with new bodies, and we'll, we'll, it says that we'll know as we are known. I mean, that's kind of wild. As for as much as Christ knows us, we'll know him. Seems like a lot. Seems like a pretty substantial volume of knowledge to be able to understand him and one another in ways we've never been able to do that before. It's just going to be an incredible time of unity and care. And nobody, yeah, no offense, no pain, no difficulty. Sorry, guys, no competition. That's what it says there in Revelation. Maybe it'll be like... Maybe we're all wrong, and maybe everybody gets a participation trophy in heaven. I don't know. You guys decide. But uh, anyway, the Lord loves you, and he's got great things for every single person. And, and, and none of us have done anything that can cause that to stop. It's important you know that. And that, that he wants to be part of your life, not just to, just to be like a, a bad dad, but to be an encourager. To, to, to be someone, yes, he's the Lord. He's the Lord of glory. We don't want to diminish that. But he's the friend of sinners at the same time. And so he's, he, he wants to be near you. He created you to be interesting and to hang out with him. And uh, I think now we'd just like to participate in that starting today, if you haven't been. If you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you and invite you to cry out to him for the forgiveness of sins 
and for eternal life and for the filling of his Holy Spirit, for strength for this life. And if you're a believer and you just feel stuck, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Sometimes you ever done something and then thought to yourself, I don't know why I did that. Not like trying to make a weird excuse because you got caught by somebody. And they're like, why did you do that? And you're like, know fully well. You're like, no, I don't know. But have you ever actually done something and like afterwards and you're like, I literally have no idea why I just did that. I don't know why I sinned that way. I don't know why I yelled at that person. I don't know why I had that thought. I don't know why. He has grace for that. There's forgiveness for that. He wants to answer that question for you. He wants to help you along. So anyway, I will stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and the truth of your word. Lord, thank you that when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Lord, we want to know you all the more. We really want to see your glory, see who you are, understand you more. Lord, we want to be more done with ourselves and, and have more, be more like you. And so we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, continue to work in our church, and just give us opportunities to love the community and to give the life of Jesus through the cross to people. And uh, yeah, you've been very good to us. And we appreciate it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.